It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, glad you're joining us here. Uh, if you haven't, like Josh says, I invite you to turn in Luke 8 and follow along. Um, as we're doing that, um, I'm curious in your mind what you think is wrong with the world. I'm curious what you think is wrong uh, with the world. We, we all ask these sort of existential questions in life, no matter who we are at some point. Uh, you begin to ask questions at a younger age, who am I, why am I here, that kind of stuff. But then as you age, you begin to ask different questions as well, as well as those, but you ask, you know, what is wrong with the world? And then you begin to ask, okay, so what is wrong with it? And then how can what is wrong be put right? How can what is wrong be put right? And, and this is one way to ask the question that Luke 8 is actually addressing. Uh, we began this journey together uh, two weeks ago in this chapter, or three weeks ago for that matter. Uh, the world will answer that question uh, if you talk to people long enough. The world will ask that question of what is wrong with the world by saying people are insufficiently educated, they're insufficiently governed, and people either then don't know enough or they have the wrong sorts of government. Uh, that, that's what's wrong with the world. Uh, if you live in the Western Hemisphere, this is the natural response. And so if that is perceived to be our problem, then the follow-up questions and answers are pretty predictable, aren't they? What's wrong with the world? Well, if that's what's wrong with the world, how can what is wrong be put right? We need better education, right? We, we need better government, right? We need better politics. So the solution to our problem of what is wrong with the world is more education. It's, it's better government. Now, Christians, as Christians, we value education, and we value the provisional good of government. But, but is that really our problem? Is, is that really then our solution? Luke answers these questions by saying, what is wrong with the world, uh, the, the problem beneath the problems, is actually our sin, that we are all unclean before a holy and pure God, and as a result of our sin, we are all going to die. We are all going to die. We are all deeply flawed and sinful, and we will all meet our end and stand before a holy God someday. This is a problem beneath the problems. So we need more than information, right? We need more than just a better sense of these things. We need a miracle. We need a miracle. The problem is education, science, and politics, they don't offer you miracles, do they? Today we come to the climax of four miracles that Luke has put together. What Luke is showing us is that Jesus is the one who has the power to deal with the greatest problems of the world all of the problems, actually, for all of the people. Jesus offers us miracles, if you will, because He offers you Himself, because He offers you Himself. It's actually very important that as we look at these two stories that Luke is weaving together for us this morning, we must have in mind that the backdrop of this is actually coming to us from the book of Ezekiel, chapters 36 and 37. It's a really important backdrop to understand, because in those chapters, God depicts His people as, in chapter 36, as a menstruating woman who is unclean. And in chapter 37, He depicts His people as a pile of dead bones that need to be brought back to life. So in Ezekiel, God promises them that He will make them clean, and that He also promises them that He will bring them new life. These are the two pictures that we pick up on here in the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus is shown as the one who is going to fulfill those two promises. He's going to make God's dirty people clean, 
and He's going to make God's dead people live. That's the background. That's, that's why these two stories are coming together here. And so here's what I want us to see, you guys. I want us to see from this story, these two stories, that desperate people who come to Jesus in faith find a compassionate and powerful Savior. That desperate people who come to Jesus in faith find a compassionate and powerful Savior. So if you are desperate this morning, if you are a person who is desperate this morning, you're actually in a really good spot because Jesus is someone who invites you to come near to Him and to trust Him in faith. So let's look at these first few verses here, verses 40 through 43, because we see two different desperate people. In verse 40, it says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all waiting for Him. So, so notice where we are. Jesus has just gone across the lake to the other side, and He cast out a legion of demons from a man in the Gentile region of the eastern side of the lake, okay? And then He, he commissions Him to go out and, and tell everybody what God has done for Him. They come across now to the other side of the lake, and a crowd meets Him. This is the same crowd that we saw in verse 4, if you remember a few weeks ago, that a great crowd was gathering from people from town after town that were coming to Jesus. So, these is the same crowd that heard Jesus tell the parable of the sower, right? So, that's where we are. Verse 41, the crowds gathered around Jesus, and here comes a man named Jairus, who's a ruler of a synagogue. So, he's a really prominent man. He's a probably very wealthy man. He's a chief official in the synagogue, so he was thought of probably very well in this community of people. So, basically, he's an important person. And look what he does in verse 41. What does he do? He falls at Jesus' feet, and he implores Jesus to come to his house. He's begging Jesus to come to his house. Now, why would such an important person who is seen as a person of strength and great capability come and basically embarrass himself by falling at the feet of Jesus in this sort of posture? We'll look at verse 42. It tells you why. For he had an only daughter, and she's just 12 years old, and she was dying. He has a little girl. He's a daddy. Jairus is a daddy. And she is only 12. And death is right around the corner. Right? He's got a father's heart, doesn't he? He's a, he's a desperate man, you would say. But there's more. The verse continues and says that Jesus begins to go to Jairus' house, seemingly to help him. In verse 43 says, Lo and behold, as everyone is pressing in around Jesus, there was a woman, and this woman had a horrible condition, right? She had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Okay, so, so notice the little girl is 12 years old, and as long as this little girl has been alive, this woman has suffered in this way, right? Luke wants us to see the link between these two women, and they couldn't be more different in social standing. This 12-year-old girl has a really prominent father, She's of great wealth and great esteem. We imagine this other woman who has this discharge of blood, she was complete outcast. She was a nobody. So if you want, you could do some fun homework this afternoon, and you could read Leviticus chapter 15. Just forget about the Seahawk game or whatever you're going to do, right? And go study Leviticus 15 this afternoon. Um, because if you want, you can get some background on what's actually going on in this woman's life. Like, why was she an outcast? And if you go and read, you'll see that if this woman under Jewish law touched anybody, she would make them ceremonially unclean for the day, right? And if anybody touched her, 
you know, they would be made equally unclean. And so, people would not go near this person. Or they wouldn't go near her. You, she was someone you stay away from. You can't touch her, and she shouldn't touch you. Now, I'm, I'm not a woman. I um, hope that's clear. But if I, if I read this, and Leviticus 15, if I read that as well as a woman, I'll just be honest with you. My initial reaction would be like, really, God, you know, why this? Why this discharge of blood? Like, why would that make somebody unclean and, and really cause them to suffer in some ways. Well, there's a lot to this, but let me say three quick things because I feel like this is important. Um, But number one, uh, it's important to realize that if you read the rest of Leviticus, especially around chapter 15, you'll see that God gives equal attention to men in regards of discharge and uncleanliness. So, suffice it to say that God isn't just out to get women, okay? That needs to be stated. Uh, But let me also, number two, recommend a resource to you if this is something you're interested in. There's a woman named Kathleen Nielsen, her name's Kathleen Nielsen, and she talks about periods and other difficult topics in her book, Women and God, Hard Questions, Beautiful Truth. So she wrote a book called Women and God, Hard Questions, Beautiful Truth, okay? So number three, though, the important point here is that what this discharge of blood is and what it represents, what it's showing you, it's pointing us back to the fall of mankind where sin entered the world and as a result, death. That's why Leviticus chapter 17 says, the life of every creature is its blood, right? And so this is pointing you back to the result of the fall, like which, when sin entered the world. And so Kathleen Nielsen actually says in her book, Women and God, Hard Questions, Beautiful Truth, she says this, the loss of blood as in a woman's bleeding, was directly associated with death, death that came on the human race as God's judgment for sin. So, these Old Old Testament purification rituals point backward to the fall and forward to Jesus, who shed His blood to cleanse us from our sin and give us eternal life. In Luke chapter 8, we see Jesus welcoming a desperate woman with a chronic discharge of blood who had in faith touched Him and been healed by Him. These Old Testament laws help us grasp the beauty of that scene. Okay, so the link between the 12-year-old girl and the woman of discharged blood for 12 years is actually pretty clear. The theme is death, isn't it? The point of this woman, though, is this. Uh, She had more than just a physical problem, didn't she? She had a very deep social problem, right? She should not be in this crowd, right? This was a bold move. Okay, this was a bold move. She should not be touching anybody, right? So, why is she here? She's desperate. She's very desperate. Why? Luke draws this out, verse 43. She had spent all of her living on physicians, and she could not be healed by anybody. Right, what, a, what a horrible, desperate, hopeless situation. This woman had no money, no savings, no support. She had no one that she could go to for answers. She's exhausted her list. And you know the list, right, where you have a situation, you're trying to figure out how to fix your problems, and you go, well, I'm going to try this. If that doesn't work, I'll go talk to that person. If that doesn't work, maybe I'll do this, right? And we go through our lists, and eventually our list runs out, and we go, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm desperate. I have nowhere else to go. There's no more options. No one could heal her. So what is she thinking? Jesus is my only hope, so maybe if I could just touch Him. I kind of wonder if you've ever been in a desperate place before, if you would at all resonate with Jairus or this woman. 
um, I tried to think this week on, upon my own life, and I thought of many disparate situations that I had been in, and I think the one that most vividly came to mind was when our fourth-born Isla uh, came into this world. Our first three pregnancies uh, with our kids were pretty smooth and pretty, pretty easy. Um, I guess uh, that's easy for me to say, um, but uh, you asked my wife to probably say something very different than that. But um, for the most part, they were very healthy, just, oh man, that was perfect, you know, kind of pregnancies, so I'll just stop talking about the easiness of it. But um, when, when Isla came into this world, my wife would agree, it was very different. The moment she came out, they whisk her away. We don't know what's going on. Red lights are flashing. Alarms are going off. She's not breathing, you know. And so, hours go by that felt like an eternity when I had no list. It's just wait, pray. I had God. That's really what I had. And by God's grace, she pulled through. And in turn, we gave her the middle name Glory because of that. Uh, Maybe you've been in a place like that. It doesn't have to be that kind of exact place. But a place where you once relied upon something and it was no longer working. The thing you found as a solution was no longer a solution, right? You thought, I know what's wrong with the world, and I know the solution to fix that problem, right? And then what you thought would be your solution didn't actually work. You know, maybe you felt desperate in overcoming a certain addiction or sin. Maybe you felt desperate in parenting your teenager. Maybe you felt desperate in looking at your bank account or your unemployment checks and wondering how you're going to pay your next bills. Or maybe you felt desperate when the news came that it was cancer. Or maybe you just feel desperate when you wake up every day and you're like wondering what your purpose is in life. We find ourselves in desperate places, don't we? And without minimizing our places or watering down Jairus's or this woman's, that's where we're at in the story. And there's really good news because we see desperate people who come to Jesus in faith find a compassionate and powerful Savior. That's where the rest of our story takes us. And so first we see this woman in verses 44 through 48, and we see in her story that Jesus has the solution to our uncleanness. Look in verse 44. She makes her bold move and touches the fringe of His garment, and I honestly, I love that. I mean, I just notice how Luke describes what part of Jesus she touches. It's not even flesh and bones Jesus. It's like the, the furthest reach of His garment. She just gets a hold of that. And the woman who spent all of her money trying to be healed, that nobody could help her with, that same woman, just by touching the fringe of His garment, is immediately healed, right? You guys, uh, don't miss the awe of this. Right? Don't lose your awe. It makes me think of being a boy, and my dad always told me to look at the plane in the sky, and you have that awe. You're like, wow. And then you finally reach the place where you're like, Dad, I've seen like a hundred planes. You know, you kind of roll your eyes at your dad. And now I do that to my kids, and uh, they still are a little bit in awe, but I'm waiting for the day where they roll their eyes, right? But don't lose the awe. We're like, man, we're flying in the air. Like, that's amazing, right? This doesn't happen every day. Guys, the woman had no money, no doctors, no friends, no support. Seemingly no one even cared, but she got her hands on Jesus. Do you see the woman who couldn't touch anybody and who couldn't be touched because she would make them unclean? Touched Jesus, and instead of Jesus becoming unclean, He makes her clean. It's a great reversal. And then in verse 45, notice Jesus' response. What does He say? Who touched me? Just kind of funny that Luke comments that everyone's like, 
denying it. They're like, we didn't touch, no one, we didn't touch you, Jesus. But then Peter says, Master, everyone's touching you, basically. It's this really funny moment. What do you mean, who touched you? But this touch was different, wasn't it? I mean, you, based upon what happens here, you would almost think that if you just randomly bumped into Jesus, if you had a, a bad back or a bum knee or a chronic disease or whatever it was, you would just be made better. But that's obviously not what happens. The way this woman touched Jesus was different, and Jesus later here says it was because of her faith. She touched Him with a different kind of intention. Verse 46, Jesus says, "'Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me.'" Jesus is not going to accept a private healing in this case. What a beautiful scene that we find here. The woman saw that she was not hidden. You see that down in verse 47. She knows that she should not be here, but Jesus is calling her out of her hiding into the open. What a scary place to be, isn't it? No wonder we're told here that she came trembling and doing what Jairus did in verse 41, falling down at his feet, but she's not urging him like Jairus, right? She, she doesn't have any requests. She just has a story now. That's all she has. She declares in the presence of all the people why she touched him and how she was made well. She tells everybody how desperate she was, basically. Coming, coming into the open, is, it could be a pretty scary place, can it? but only if you doubt the goodness of Jesus. Because you guys, Jesus doesn't call you out into the open to shame you. That's not why He does it. He doesn't shame her. He draws her out so that He can draw her in. Do you notice this? What does He call her? He doesn't call her woman. He calls her daughter, doesn't He? What an intimate title. I mean, I say to my daughters all the time, there's only two people in the world that I can call my daughter, and I think that's special and they kind of giggle and hug me, and I'm cheesy dad, whatever. But at the same time, someday that won't be as special, maybe. But it will always be, even to me. This is an intimate comment, and Jesus is picking back up on something He said up in verse 21 that was what? My mothers and my brothers are those who hear the Word of God and do it. He's inviting her in. He's picking up on that. He's drawing her out to draw her in. But guys, notice that she, she tries to come to Jesus secretly. She wants to remain unnoticed. She she wants a private healing. In some ways, I think what is most surprising about this miracle is that the focus isn't really on the miracle itself, but the fact that Jesus will not allow her to keep it a secret. And then after her public testimony, Jesus publicly declares that she's been restored. Jesus is announcing that He is accepting her as cleansed, And in doing so, he is demanding that the crowd and everyone else who's present do the same, that they accept her as cleansed. Do you see this? As this woman was unclean, and because of her uncleanness, she couldn't go to the temple, she couldn't be near God in that way, we too, just like you and me, are unclean and unable to be near God apart from the cleansing power of Jesus. This woman is actually picturing your spiritual condition. You're supposed to see that. I'm the woman. You're the woman. Do you resonate with her? Are you somewhere in the crowd like, wow, that's crazy? Remember, Israel is depicted in Ezekiel as a menstruating woman 
who was defiled through her actions. She was defiled through her idolatry. She was defiled in her worshiping of other gods except for God. They were defiled in the land because of the blood they had actually spilt in oppression of other people. And God says, because of that, you are unclean. They're like a menstruating woman, He says, who cannot have a relationship with God. They cannot go before God because of their actions. As in the Bible says that we are equally unclean before God because of our actions, because of our idolatry, because of our mistreatment of other people. This woman pictures the same situation that you find yourself in apart from Jesus this morning. But the great news is that just like this woman, we can be cleansed if we come to Jesus in faith. That's why 1 John says, if we walk in the light where God is, that means stepping out of your hiding stepping out of your darkness and into the light, we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, does what? It cleanses us from all of our sin. And then He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As the message of this story is that if you feel how dirty your life is, and if you feel unacceptable to God, and you're wondering, how in the world can I ever deal with my dirt and be made acceptable, if you've exhausted your list, Jesus will make you clean. He will make you clean immediately and completely, and He will bring you into His family as His son or daughter. And just as this woman is called to share how she has been cleansed, we are called to do the same. So if you're a believer this morning, you have been cleansed, and our call is actually now to testify to one another and other people what we've been specifically cleansed of. But we often speak in generalities, don't we, when we talk about our own forgiveness. And so in a way of saying everything, we say nothing. Do you know what I mean? We won't admit to being sinners in specifics where it's too embarrassing for us. We want to keep our conditions secret, but what we really want is a private cleansing, don't we? Something that no one else knows about. Be cleaned and move on. That's not what Jesus will allow. Let I me mean, just consider 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't be deceived. Neither will the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the wonderful words from Paul, and such were some of you, but you were cleansed. You were cleansed by God. You were sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows these people. He knows who they were. Paul could specifically say, this is who some of you were, but not anymore because you've been cleansed. I imagine that everything that I just rattled out of my mouth that Paul said makes up people in our church, every single one of us. We find ourselves in that list, right? Don't we? And how much rejoicing would there be if we actually knew what Jesus has cleansed us from? Right? We, we can't if we don't tell, if we don't share, if we want a private cleansing. 
Why don't, why don't you testify to the power of God and the cleansing you've received? We might often be too embarrassed, but deep down, it's probably because we might fear that we won't be accepted by others if they knew the truth about us. My, my guess is that we would only openly testify when others know and we believe that they would accept us unconditionally. So, so I want to ask you this morning, this is what I want to ask us as a church, okay? What kind of person would you look down on if they confessed what their specific sin was? What kind of person would you look down on? What sort of person would be unwilling, you'd be unwilling to accept or it'd be really hard for you to accept as a brother or sister in Christ if they confessed a particular sin as their sin? See, the fact that we might actually feel that way is what hinders people from openly declaring what they've been cleansed from. We are called to accept anybody that trusts in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus makes anybody who comes to Him in faith clean. And when Jesus makes us clean, He embraces us as family. If God has embraced someone, then oh my gosh, so should we. Let me just sharpen this point. I love how in the book of Acts, when Saul is converted, Ananias is told to go and minister to Saul, and he's like, God, you mean that person that's killing people like me? You want me to go to him? And Jesus says, yes, go. Ananias goes, meets with Saul, who's been persecuting Christians. The first words out of his mouth are what? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. He embraces Saul as a brother immediately because Jesus has. This is what Jesus does to desperate people who come to Him in faith. He cleanses them. He's a, he's a powerful and compassionate Savior. He draws us out to draw us in. And then finally, we see here that Jesus has not only the solution to our uncleanness, but He has the solution to what our uncleanness leads to, and that is death. Verse 49 is where we pick back up on this, and it's interesting because there's this moment, again, we have these stories tethered together in one moment of joy and amazement and restoration, we get the news that no parent ever wants to hear. While Jesus was still speaking, verse 49, someone from Jairus' house comes and says, Jairus, your daughter is dead. I mean, there's no more desperation in those words, right? There's just hopelessness, which is why this person says, don't trouble the teacher anymore. There's no more point, Jairus. Hope is gone. The final blow has been dealt. I'm sorry. There's no one who can deal with that kind of problem. You just have to sit here for a second. I mean, imagine those words coming to your ears as Jairus heard them. What are you thinking? What are you going to do? How do you process that? Your worst case scenario has come true. Your 12-year-old girl is gone. Verse 50 says what? Look in verse 50. While the worst news is entering one ear of Jairus, Jesus' words are entering the other. And what does he say? Do not fear, only believe. Only believe. And she will be well. Everyone's thinking, we've just seen it. A sick daughter could be healed, but a dead daughter can only be buried. But Jairus shows his faith by continuing to take Jesus to his house. And in verse 51, we have this intimate gathering in the room with the dead girl. We have the mom, the dad, three disciples, and Jesus. And in verse 52, we find what we would expect. People are weeping and mourning for this girl. They're in full swing. 
in their weeping and in their mourning, but Jesus commands them to stop. He commands them to stop. Jesus redefines the reality of the situation. He's redefining it. He says what? She's not dead, she's asleep. She's just sleeping. It's, it's temporary. He's redefining the reality. And in verse 53, the weepers and mourners go from crying to laughing, not because they thought Jesus told a joke, not because they're like, he's got a great dry sense of humor or something like that. No, they're laughing because what does it say? They knew she was dead. So when you say she's sleeping, it's just, this is incredulous. No one can fix this. What an image, guys, that death to Jesus is no more powerful than sleep. I mean, I know some people are hard to wake up, but eventually, you get the smelling salts if you have to, they'll wake up, right? And that's the image of what Jesus is about to do. He's like, I'm going to go wake her up. Verse 54, he touches the girl, which again would have made him unclean under Jewish law, but it doesn't stop Jesus. Her dead body doesn't make him unclean. His touch brings her life. Taking her by the hand, he says, child, arise. He orders her. He commands her to come back to life, and she obeys him. And you see here the full extent of the power of Jesus. Her spirit returns, and what does it say? She got up at once. It's immediate. I mean, who looks at a dead person and tells them to get up, and they do? Who is it that not only commands the weather and it obeys Him, who not only commands a legion of demons and they obey Him, who not only has the authority to end a sickness that no one could heal by merely having the fringe of His garment touched, but commands the dead and they obey? Only God. Only God can do that. But then we have this strange end of this series of miracles. It's kind of jarring because everyone's in astonishment, but they're told not to say anything about it. They're told to be quiet, which is confusing for us, right? Because the demon-possessed man was just commissioned to go and tell everybody what God has done for him. He just drew out this unclean woman from the crowd and told her to share what God had done for her. But here we're told to be quiet. What's going on? Are we, are we supposed to draw from this that you're not supposed to tell anybody about the resurrection? No, not at all. What Jesus is saying is that it's not yet time for His resurrection power to be publicly proclaimed. I mean, the fact of the resurrection, if you look back in chapter, earlier chapter 8, is one of the secrets of the kingdom, basically, that we look back on. It's not yet time for it to come out into the open because ultimately, the raising of Jairus' daughter is pointing us ahead to the raising of Jesus, right? And then once Jesus is raised, we're to proclaim it from the mountaintops. It's no longer a secret. This is a miracle, right? This is a sign, a sign, which I've talked to you about this before, is like if you see a sign on the road and it says, hey, Portland's that way X amount of miles, you don't stop and say, I'm in Portland now. No, it's, it's directing your eyes further down the road. It's pointing you where to go, right? This is a sign, right? It's a glimpse of where we're headed here. So, how are we to take this? I mean, are you to take this story and, and the woman's story 
uh, as a point that if you come to Jesus, He's going to solve all your worst circumstances in this world? Are you supposed to do that? Just if I have enough faith, He'll solve all my circumstances. Some people will tell you that, but to put it plainly, they're wrong. Right? This is a, a taste, you guys. Again, it's pointing you somewhere. The Savior is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. The great reversal is taking place. When sin enters the world, the curses of this world enter in this world. The fallenness of the world is present, but Jesus is here and the great reversal is taking place. The storms are being calmed. Demons are shuddering. The worst sicknesses have a master and death even has a Lord and His name is Jesus. It's pointing you towards the great reality that one day there will be a new heavens and new earth and that day is beginning now. We're headed towards that direction. This is a taste though. It's a taste. It's like when your mom made you cookies as a kid or if you've ever had anybody make you cookies, right? And, and they're not baked yet, but they, she says, hey, do you want to lick the spoon, right? Do you want to lick the beater or something like that? I grew up always doing that. What do you say? Absolutely, right? Of course I'm going to do that. But you know as you're licking the spoon, as you're licking the egg beater, it's just a taste, right, of what's actually going to come. Something is going to come out of the oven eventually, and that's the thing you've been waiting for. But you're licking the spoon while you wait for the real thing. Do you know what I'm saying? You follow me in my weird mind maybe? I don't know. Right? It's a taste. That's what it is. It's a taste. The real thing is coming. So you may come to these stories hoping that Jesus will change your current circumstances, and it's not wrong to have faith and to believe that Jesus can work miracles and change your circumstances. He often does. But if we think that's the point, we're missing it altogether because it's a taste. Jesus isn't here to heal your symptoms. He's a really good doctor, and He's come to cure the deep and abiding disease that all these symptoms are being manifested from. That's what He's doing. Jesus is doing what God said He would do for His people in Ezekiel 37. In that story, you see God's people pictured as being dry bones, and Ezekiel is commanded to speak God's Word to those dry bones. And as he does that, the bones come together and flesh starts coming on them, but it still doesn't work. And so God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. And then the breath of life comes in them, and the dead bones leap to their feet. Right? And that's exactly what we see here. Right, the little girl is commanded to get up and she leaps to her feet. This is showing us that Jesus has the power to solve our greatest problems, the problems beneath all the problems. Jesus has the power to solve the problem of your uncleanness and to solve the problem of death. He has the power to bring His people back to life. This is showing us what Jesus is going to do. So if you're a Christian, you are like this little girl in that you have been raised from death into a brand new, new creation spiritual life. That's why in Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your sin, but God made you alive together with Christ. Just like the girl, you've been brought back to life. Just like she was dead, she's picturing your spiritual condition. So you can almost look at this story and go, that's me. That's me. But you've been brought back to life just as much as this girl has been brought back to life. You've been restored into a relationship with your heavenly Father, just like this girl was restored into a relationship with her earthly father. You were spiritually raised already if you believe in Christ, if you've come to Him in faith. But while we still live in this fallen world, we are destined to die bodily. But we know that our final breath will not be our final breath. We can be confident that our death is not the end. 
but death is sleep. And because of that, we don't need to fear death. Right? We don't pretend it won't happen, and we don't, we don't face it without grief, but we also face it with hope. That's why it says in Hebrews 2 that Jesus came to, quote, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Is your life held in slavery because of the fear of death? Jesus has come to free you, and He calls death for you sleep if you come to Him in faith. This story is the taste. I mean, if you read through to the end of Luke, Jesus Himself will enter death, won't He? But because He was perfectly clean, the grave, it couldn't hold Him. So He got up from death three days later after He died, and the same word that's used here is used there at the end of Luke, get up, arise. He is risen. This is what the angels say at the resurrection account. In just the same way Jesus is resurrected, He eats food, doesn't He? Right? To prove that He's there's an illusion, He's not a ghost. The same way He tells this little girl, hey, give her something to eat. This isn't magic, right? This isn't, your eyes are, you're seeing what you're supposed to be seeing here. Right? In the same way, at Jesus' account of resurrection, there's astonishment, just like here. So, let me ask you, how will you respond this morning? How will you respond to Jesus this morning if you see Him as He truly is? How should we respond to Him as a church? Well, it's simple but really important. As as desperate people, we should come to Jesus in faith no matter our problem, no matter our trepidation, no matter our confidence, no matter the cost. We continually come to Jesus in faith and trust Him no matter what. I mean, this is really actually the emphasis of the passage. Luke wants you to see the difference between being simply around Jesus, bumping into Him, as it were, and coming to Him in faith. Tozer, A.W. Tozer says, faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. Faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. And if I could say it this way, as we gaze, we lick the spoon right? As we get our hands on Jesus, we remember that we don't make Him unclean, but He makes us clean. So, we keep going to Him. As we get our hands on Him, we trust Him through all the storms. We, we trust Him even though evil surrounds us, right? We, we trust Him through all of our sickness and even in facing our own death. We don't just come to Him asking to fix our temporary problems. We come to Him with hope that He has the power to fix the problems of the world. So, what is wrong with the world? We're all unclean. In our sin, death is awaiting us all. So, what's the solution? It's not just more education and more government or something, right? Solving the problem of death would take a miracle, and education and governments don't offer you those things. But the good news is that there has been a miracle, and His name is Jesus. And Scripture says that Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I want you to just picture Jesus right now, standing with death defeated under His feet, and He calls out to all of you, saying, come to me, 
come to me. The question for every one of us is do we trust him? Are you desperate this morning? Well, come to Jesus in faith. I promise you'll find a compassionate and powerful Savior. Would you stand with me? God, we pray this morning that you would help us to see what we need to see. God, that you would comfort those, God, who are hurting, who are hiding. God, that you would draw people out and bring full cleansing and healing to our lives. God, I pray for, for, for us if, if we're struck with so much fear over the thought of death or just things in this world, God, I pray that we would come face to face with you, our resurrected Savior today, and see the compassion and power that you have. God, will we respond to you in the way uh, that you deserve and in a way that you've called us to this morning? We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling your word to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.